0: Welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is November 28, 2021, and I'm your host, James Myers. It is an honor to be joined in dialogues by participants from the Toronto Philosophy and Calgary Philosophy Meetup groups. Whether you have been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. I'll begin by introducing one of the key themes from today's reading selection, which covers part of Book Seven of the Republic in passages from Stephanus Reference 521a to 541b. Then I will invite participants to exchange their thoughts on the text. And as I do so, I'll briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread of ideas. I've suggested three themes to focus our discussion, which are posted on the shared drive that is linked to the event notice on meetup.com. We can go anywhere the group chooses, but for everyone's benefit, I would ask that you relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. To contribute your thoughts, please use the raise hands feature in Zoom. Calling the first name as it appears on your screen profile, I will invite you to speak in the order that hands are raised, giving precedence to those who haven't spoken before. After we finish recording in two hours, I invite any participants who wish to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. So, two weeks ago, our fourth session on the Republic began with Socrates' declaration that until philosophers rule, there will be no end to evils in the city or in the human race. We discussed the soul of a philosopher as that which hates falsehood. The philosopher's soul applies reason to seek eternal truths, which cannot be found among the sensory images of a constantly changing physical world. Socrates and his friends agreed that the philosopher understands the difference between the eternal unchanging being of a thing and the things many varied images in the continual state of coming to be in the present. That led us to a fascinating discussion on the nature of time, which we will now revisit. But before introducing today's reading, I want to note that in two weeks, before we break for the holidays, we will conclude our six part series on the Republic by reading from 587B through to the end of book 10 at 621D. Very much looking forward to that discussion and we will have the opportunity to consider the conclusion on the subject of justice with which Plato began the Republic. So today we will pick up on the theme we ended with two weeks ago, which is the type of education and knowledge that equips a, a philosopher to apply intelligence to understand the intelligible. Intelligence requires reason, which is absent in the sensory data that the soul receives in the present state of coming to be. It is the soul's task, so- Socrates says in the conclusion of the Republic, to distinguish imitation from the real. And at the outset of today's reading, he says the first order of knowledge for this purpose is knowledge of number and calculation. So let's begin today's dialogue with Socrates' question at 521d, where he asks what subject it is that draws the soul from the realm of becoming, which is the uncertain state of coming to be in the present, to the realm of what is, where there is certainty of truth. His answer follows at 522c, that the first subject for any philosopher is number and calculation, which he demonstrates with three fingers. It may seem unusual to us now, 2,400 years later, when number and calculation don't normally feature in the curriculum for philosophy students. But Socrates' point is really about our ability to navigate the differences that are with us every moment that we navigate the physical world. The physical world, we now know from Isaac Newton's third law of motion operates in equal and opposite measures of action and reaction, and it does so according to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. So distinguishing what is different from what is the same is intrinsic to our physical existence and, as Socrates repeatedly asserts, is fundamental to our understanding of time. Socrates divides time into two different categories, in one are the past and future that are continuous in being that never becomes. And in the other, there is the present, which is the changing realm of becoming that never is. So let's see if we can understand what Socrates means in his three finger demonstration from 523d to to 524e. Then let's discuss the difference uh, in the meanings of the word calculation. And so here, let me share my screen. And I wanna just put my fingers up as Socrates did uh, and he, he puts up three fingers in this demonstration, his second, third, and fifth finger. And he, I'll just read this section here. He says, it's apparent that each of them is equally a finger. And it makes no difference in this regard, whether the finger is seen to be in the middle or at either end, whether it is dark or pale, thick or thin, or anything else of that sort. For in all these cases, an ordinary soul isn't compelled to ask the understanding what a finger is, since sight doesn't suggest to it that a finger is at the same time the opposite of a finger. So here he's saying, I'll just break that that reading, here he's saying that we just sort of intrinsically understand what a finger is, whether it's a finger on an old person, a young person, whether it's a dark finger or a light finger, uh, thick or thin, uh, short or stub, uh, short stubby or or long, we just intuitively understand what a finger is. So he goes on to say, therefore, it isn't likely that anything of that sort would summon or awaken the understanding. But what about the bigness and smallness of fingers? Does sight perceive them adequately? Does it make no difference to it whether the finger is in the middle or at the end? And is it the same with the sense of touch as regards the thick and the thin? the hard and the soft? And do the other senses reveal such things clearly and adequately? Doesn't each of them rather do the following? The sense set over the hard is, in the first place, of necessity also set over the soft, and it reports to the soul that the same thing is perceived by it to be both hard and soft. And isn't it necessary that in such cases, the soul is puzzled as to what this sense means by the hard if it Indicates that the same thing is also soft, or what it means by the light and the heavy. If it indicates that the heavy is light or the light heavy, I'll just break again there and just uh, just say that you know here he's he's setting up this idea of opposite. So we understand in, in intuitively what a finger is, whether it's a finger on a human, whether it's a finger on an animal. We understand it really, I think, maybe because of its function, and we can underst- we can discuss that more. But but once we understand what a finger is then there are many different types of fingers and here's where he's starting to talk about the the opposites you know so some fingers you can perceive a finger to be hard in one sense but then you can touch it and you know it gives to the touch so in some senses it's soft so maybe this kind of idea of relativity you know is is a finger a finger is hard compared to some things but it's soft compared to other things and that's that's really saying that it's, it's sort of this The soul is summoning this kind of understanding of these differences. And so he goes on to say, then it's likely that in such cases, the soul, summoning calculation and understanding, first tries to determine whether each of the things announced to it is one or two. If it's evidently two, won't each be evidently distinct and one? Then if each is one and both two, the soul will understand that the two are separate, For it wouldn't understand the inseparable to be two but rather one. Sight, however, saw the big and the small not as separate but as mixed up together. And in order to get clear about all this, understanding was compelled to see the big and the small not as mixed up together but as separate, the opposite way from sight. And because of this, we called the one the intelligible and the other the visible. If something opposite to it is always seen at the same time so that nothing is apparently any more than uh, than the opposite of one, then something would be needed to judge the matter. The soul uh, would then be puzzled, would look for an answer, and would stir up its understanding, and would ask what the one itself is. Uh, and so I just wanted to start with this this section you know is is so here we've got this idea that you know there is kind of the idea of the form of a finger, it's kind of the universal idea of a finger, but fingers present themselves in various different types of particulars. And so there's that one idea. And then the other idea that Socrates is bringing in here is the idea of calculation and number as being the, the most important subject that a philosopher uh, can learn. Uh, and I just wanted to get uh, some ideas about that. You know, do we understand... Um, or do we accept, first of all, this this idea of, of you know, the finger as being one type of thing, that there's a universal idea of a finger, but that the finger presents itself in various different ways? Uh, and then what, what do we understand by Socrates' meaning when he says calculation? Uh, is there only one way of interpreting calculation, or are there different ways of interpreting calculation? Um, and so I just wanted to throw it open to that. Uh, and see what what people think is there uh, do we have some thoughts on on those two questions really either the universal idea of the the oneness of a finger versus its many different particulars or or the idea of calculation what is meant by calculation but we'll start with uh, we'll start with Joel
1: yeah I'll, I'll give this a, a try James mm-hmm. I um it's intuitively appealing to me what I, and I haven't read this before or heard it discussed, that calculation is among the most elemental properties of the soul or of reason. Uh, I think um, the, the the properties of of fingers, we might come to a different threshold where we observe you know a hand and we can distinguish a thumb from a baby finger, an index finger, whatever. Uh, But we recognize them somehow. They, in in an unknown way, we're calculating the differences between these and saying they don't exceed that threshold from which we would no longer consider them a finger like we do with the palm of my hand. Um, And quantity, numbers, are the are the one element that seem to be the most primary of all the elements, at least to the individual human being. We may get into more complex reasoning in physics and other places, but I, I find that whole line of questioning intuitively appealing.
2: Thank you, and, and you know certainly you really struck me what
0: you said, Joel, when you said that it it's as if there is this threshold beyond which a finger is no longer a finger. And certainly the calculation would allow us to determine where that threshold is. Um, so that that particularly struck me. And this and again this idea of differences, you know, that I introduced with and I, I think you picked up on this this idea of we have to determine what the differences are and calculation would seem to be required for that. Uh, Bill, what are your thoughts?
3: I can't say I understand this completely. I'd have to read it more carefully. But when when what comes to mind when you talk about when he talks about calculation is that to me the calculation means um, our ability to discern between different things Mm -hmm. to separate. So from oneness we create multiplicity, Mm -hmm. and um, you know that's just I guess that's part of our nature, but. but there is still, you know, it's, the impression to me is that there is still this oneness that that is still there, even though we we are perceiving or using our minds to to create different forms of this one thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't if that makes any sense, but that's it, what comes to mind.
0: It does, and yeah, this idea of discerning the one from the many, I think, is uh, is a key idea Bill, that you raised and. Um, and maybe just, I'll present, you know, a couple of, I, I sat down yesterday and tried to think of different ways that we use the word, the word calculate or calculation. And, and I came up with sort of two different ways that we can use the word. One, one relates to uncertainty and the other relates to certainty. So in the uncertain sense of the word calculate, uh, I came up with two sentences. The first is, before acting, I calculated my chance of success to be greater than failure. And so that's kind of an estimate. And the other sentence was, by my calculation, we should arrive at midnight. And again, that's kind of an estimate of, you know, I I calculated that, you know, the time from now until our arrival is going to take us so long. And and so that's when I predict our arrival will be. So that's in the sense of uncertainty, I think, that we use the word calculator calculation. And in the context of certainty, I came up with two different sentences, and they're both mathematical. Uh, So in the the context of certainty, one sentence is I calculate the sum or product of these numbers to be, you know, whatever it is, or I calculated the cube of two equals eight. Uh, And so those are certain statements. Uh, So, you know, we've got this idea of calculation, both dealing with certainty and uncertainty. Um, And I'm just wondering, you know, how we relate that to Socrates' sense of time. Uh, and it's a sense of time that actually started. Um, I've got an excerpt here in the, the notes uh, from Timaeus 37D to th- 37C to 38D, um, where, you know, he talks about time as being sort of split, as I said in the introductory notes, split between the past and the future on one hand, which are in this eternal state of being. There is no becoming. The past and future they're not subject to change. What is subject to change is the present. And so this present is the state of becoming. Uh, So the present is kind of this uncertain state, whereas the past and the future, uh, there is no becoming involved with those. And so calculation seems to cover both of those two different states. If If you think of calculation as dealing, you know, sometimes with uncertainty, which is what we deal with in the present, and sometimes with certainty. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, whether whether we see that, or whether there's any other definitions of calculation that could apply here. Again, it's something that seems a little bit unusual, you know, from a modern perspective. Um, philosophers aren't put through school to deal with numbers and calculation necessarily, uh, it, or it doesn't seem to be at least the widespread part of the curriculum. It may be parts of some, but. Um, but not not of any that I know. Uh, but here he's saying it is actually the first and most important subject that a philosopher
2: should should learn. J.K., what's your take on that?
4: Yeah, it seems like he wants to separate um, this uh, idea of uh, calculation and certainty, you know, from the uh, from the uncertainty, you know, of um, of the uh, of time, the flow. Uh, the temporality of the of, uh, of changes and so forth that uh, you know so the present you know is uncertain mm-hmm. because it's constantly in a in a flux and constant flux of change of becoming and so the uh, the only certain you now there so he's trying to uh, you know establish the certainty of past and future which uh, is based on one's um <clears throat> Rational or you know memory of course you know, memory and and thought you know reason and um you know um you know aligning that with a certain, the, uh certain that's the you know certainty and calculation and uh, yeah, there is a kind of uh a sense of certainty in mathematics because it's um you know it it is uh, you know associated with uh, what is, what is eternal you know, the past and future and, and the unchanging. Um but is it you know is it reasonable to separate that from uh
2: you know from our existence in
4: time and so that um that's what he, I think that's what he's proposing and that the uh that there is this uh you know truth of um of uh calculation and certainty that can be separated from the flux of time
2: and change. Yeah, Yeah, and
0: and thank you for that. It's uh, just, I think it's very critical to understand, uh, to the understanding of what Socrates is trying to say in the Republic and elsewhere. This distinction between being and becoming. Um, You know, you use the word JK flux, um, and, you know, this is maybe something that we face in the present. And so I just wanted to um, present this idea, this drawing that I I did in the last page of the notes here uh, that I've got on the screen. And so here on the screen, I drew a line. Uh, The line starts at the past and continues onto the future. But the line is broken in the middle by a circle. And in the circle, I place the present. So I labeled the the line that goes into the circle being the past and the line that comes out of the circle being the future. So these are the same line. Um, But I I broke it up by the circle in the middle. And I think this is really what uh, what Socrates, uh, or what is described not by Socrates but by Timaeus uh, in Timaeus 37d to 38c, uh, this idea that the the past and the future always are, and so they they are always being. There is no becoming in the past and the future. The only the only becoming is in the present. The, the present is where we have our change, uh, and and that's good for us because this is obviously our chance to make our Uh, our mark on on time. Uh, And so in the present, you know, this is where we have the visible, for example. Uh, in The the past and the future are not visible, but the present is visible to us. Um, So the past and the future are only intelligible. And that's what Socrates says that we require reason to understand the intelligible. The present we use our our sensory inputs to to receive information on that. And and we saw that in that part that we read uh, that Socrates uses three fingers to demonstrate. Um, So the present, you know, we have it exists in three dimensions of space. They're always rational. Uh, They always share one dimension of time. There's always two limits of past and future. And they are, as we now know, subject to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. And the uncertainty principle says that the more you know of an object's position, the less you know of its momentum and vice versa. And so inside this circle, inside the circular limit here, uh, we've got this state of becoming, uh, whereas the outside the circle is the state of being. Um, So I just wondered if that kind of depiction is, is helpful. I've even put, you know, the circle is, as we know, two pi. So I put, you know, a pi on the top of the circle and a, and a pi on the bottom. So pi is irrational. And inside the circle, we've got the diameter, which is, uh, which is broken into two radii, which are, are rational. Um, so I'm just wondering whether this particular depiction of time is helpful in understanding this distinction between becoming in the present,
2: and eternal being in the past and the future. Bill?
3: A little bit confused about this because, you know, when you, the sense in the picture is that in this representation, the future and the past are classed as being. Um, the being, the word being, it means that as has inherent in it to be. And that to me is, just, is that Belongs to the present, not the future. You know, the future is is not here. So it's not. It's not. Uh, we're not in it. So we're not. We're not. We're not. Um, the only time we're being, uh, to me, is is in the present. <laughs> so I, I'm coming at it the uh, the opposite way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's just uh, I, I understand what you're saying, but there's. I think. I see it in a different way. because mm-hmm. um, yeah, you, know, you can only live in the present. Right. We all we all do our living in the present, every moment. We can't we we can live in the past, but that's not very helpful. Mm-hmm. We can live in the future; that's not very helpful either, because we're living in the dream world. Mm-hmm. But when we're in the present, that's where all our living is done. To me, anyway.
0: And it's it's a, an excellent question. I think, it, And I think you're picking up on a question that Jane asked in the last episode, um, which is this kind of, we seem to have this intuitive sense perhaps that the present always is. It just never disappears because we're always in the present. Um, but I think the point here is one that's more particularly related to our understanding of physics. Uh, and as I said, I mean, in the present, we've got this constant change of uh, constant change of action and reaction in equal and opposite measures. And this is Isaac Newton's third law of motion that was, you know, we've known this for about the past 400 years that in the present, there's always action and action in equal and opposite measures. And we've known for the past close to 100 years, uh, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle that uh, that we can't know we can't know the same amount uh, of information about an object's position and its momentum. Uh, The more we know about one, the less we know about the other. So there's, there's always, and I think JK used the word that there's always this kind of flux in the present uh, where there's always this change, you know, the physical objects are, they, they come to be and they decay and all of physics uh, eventually winds up in entropy. So we start with, with physical objects, which are in a particular state of order. Uh, You know, my, my fingers are in a particular state of order. Um, We know that, you know, the the molecules and the fingers, you know, are are atoms, and the atoms are made of uh, electrons and protons and neutrons. And then we know that that further can be divided into into quarks. But we also know that all of that will eventually be subject to entropy. So all of that order that we see in the physical world tends to disorder. And at the end of time, there's this maximum state of disorder, which is entropy. So physical objects come to be and they pass from being. And Socrates makes that point. And so there's never truly a fixed, permanent state of being in the present. The present is always this changing state, uh, whereas the past and the future... Uh, are a continuous state. And that's what I've tried to depict here is, is what is said in Timaeus 37D to 38C. Uh, that which is always motion, changeless and motionless cannot become either older or younger in the course of time. Here he's talking about past and, and uh, future. Um, and then he says, um Uh, I'll just find the other section there. Uh, He says that the past and the future have come to be. It's the present that is always changing. And so it never reaches, the present never reaches a permanent state of being. It's continually changing. So, uh, you know, thank you for that question. Did did you want to follow up, Bill, with that?
3: Yes. Well, I just want to say I can't argue with that because, you know, Mm -hmm. when we're living in the present, that's where all action is happening, all, all activity. So, you know, it's it's just it's just normal to think that, you know, it's it's hard to argue against the where action is happening. It's it's happening in the presence moment, for sure.
2: And I think this
0: um, and, and I think as you know, as I said last time, this is kind of the way I think of time, is I'm constantly pulling on a on a string. And in the middle of the string there's this bubble. That's the present. And then as soon as a present moment is completed, as soon as that cycle of action and reaction is completed, this bubble would disappear and one point would be added to the past, one point would be added to the future and another bubble would appear. So the present moment never disappears. It's always, it continues, uh, but it only has a specific length. It only has a specific duration. So we go from present to present to present to present, but the present is limited uh, in its in its restricted to action and action action and reaction and equal and opposite measures. Whereas the past and the future are always continuous. There will always be a past. There will always be a future. And I'm wondering if if this depiction is is helpful in that sense. Uh, Jk, what are your thoughts?
4: Yeah, you know, I think what the bill is referring to is the kind of uh, the subjective experience of um, of um, existence. Uh, so there, you know, from the uh, from Socrates point of view, I think and uh, the end, he's aligning that with uh, the scientific uh, point of view, the objective point of view. Of, uh, But in reality, nobody, uh, nobody experiences, uh, you know, uh, time in this, in the way he's describing it. Um, the future is, we're always projecting ourselves into the future. And we're always, um, dragging the past with us, you know, in our memories. And so in a sense, and we're, we're not ever in the present because once we arrive, we have the sense that we're in the present, we're already, you know, um, go, uh, going towards the future, thinking about the future. And, um, so in that sense, it's a subjective experience and nobody, uh, you know, uh, you know, um, can, um, can get out of that subject experience. You can, I guess you can, um, you know, the scientific uh, objective view is to pretend as though, uh, this is how it is objectively. But so there, you know, uh, the the scientists who are saying that is just imagining that they have no subjectivity of, of experience, but, um, but I think that's what um, you know. Plato was getting at—that he's trying to think about um, <clears throat> present, past, and future objectively, rationally, and and like somehow get out of your subjectivity and look at the uh, look at yourself in that way, which is not uh, not possible or realist- realistic anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: well, yeah, really interesting use of words there, JK, the, the difference between objective and subjective. Um, and certainly when we're in the present, I think, as you said, we're always projecting into the future. I mean, it's it's what we have to do to survive, right? We can't just remain static. We always have to deal with these changing situations, you know, with this kind of theme of difference that we started, you know, with the introduction of today's episode, this theme of difference. We always have to deal with that difference. And so when you say projecting into the future, I think that's maybe a form of calculation. Uh, we're, we're doing these calculations to project what will happen if we take certain actions. Um, and, and really interesting use of the, the word subjective, you know, and, and I think you said, you know, as soon as we as soon as we think about the future, we're actually changing things in the present. You know, so it's that thought process that changes things in the present. Uh, and the thought process is never turned off, so the present is always changing, I guess. And yeah. um, so, if, if if I've summarized that correctly,
4: yeah. Well, in a sense, that you know, if everything's changing, <clears throat> if the, uh, if you're saying that uh, we're in the uh, process of change, we're never in the present, right? Mm-hmm. We can never, you know, identify. Oh, this is the uh, this moment. Okay, I'm I'm right in this moment. Once you before you even say that, you're already moved beyond that moment. That you want to capture you, so you can never really be in the moment of, or the present. Um, you can, you know, generalize and say, okay, well, yeah, well, you're you're in the present, but you're in. Uh, but if you um, if you think about it, you you are never because everything's changing. So how, how could you possibly be in the in pre- the present of any of any experience <clears throat> of the of the moment.
0: Yeah, I think very much, and, and you know certainly the word "be" is the, the words "be" and "is" uh, a Socrates or, or not Socrates. I keep seeing Socrates, but it's Timaeus. Timaeus uh, in in the Timaeus keeps saying that the word the way we use the words "be" and "is" aren't really correct, and you know, we say that we are in the present, but I think J.K. as you just said, we're not really. You know, we're not at one static position in the present. where we exist in the present, but but that present is always changing. It's like it's like maybe that we're standing on a on a stage, and that stage underneath us is always moving, right? So we're never on a fixed point on the stage. The stage is
2: always moving. But we exist. It's not to say that we don't exist. j b. What are your thoughts on this?
5: It almost seems like it's um the present exists, but we just can't understand it because the minute, as JK said, the minute we think about it, it's already past. Could this be a, an issue of understanding, maybe? I like to think of the past as maybe a, some giant body of water that's constantly mm-hmm. growing, the present more of a faucet that's constantly drifting, and the future really, in, in my mind, really doesn't exist the past is there what's happened has happened the present is constantly changing leading me into the future yes but it, it it's hard to it's hard to really understand that because the minute i think about it everything is already gone by
0: interesting analogy that you use there the the present being the faucet and the past being the giant ocean so it's kind of where drawing from this ocean of the past and, and, you know, dripping it into the future from moment to moment. I, I like that. It's, you know, certainly this, this idea of, you know, observation, having an effect on things, you know, that, that has been, uh, you know, debated in science really since uh, since uh, quantum mechanics first came out, you know, I think that's back in maybe first, you know, the, the great di- debate between um the the great Copenhagen you know debate you know whether the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics is is correct um, and you know that's been going on I guess since the 1920s for about 100 years you know the and this this strange phenomenon of the observer effect you know the the instant you observe uh, a quantum process the observation itself changes the outcome of the process. Um, so that's, uh, I think that's something that's really tying into this. Um, and certainly, you know, the way I see this entire diagram here is that it's really the sum of, all probab- sum of all probabilities, past, present, and future. We could see it as the sum of all probabilities. And where the probabilities change is in the present. Um, the unchanging parts are in the fa- past and the future.
3: Um, Bill? Well, I was just going to say that uh, that I you know I agree that in the present um, uh, things are always changing, and in the past and the future they're kind of stuck. There's no change going on there. We 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 change the past by thinking and and the future by thinking about it in different ways, which are un, which are untrue. You know we're using our imagination to change. Them. Past and the future, but in the present, uh, all we are doing is we're observing. Where we're observing and and uh, responding to what's there. So it's it's the, it, you know if we use our reason, then the present is the uh, is in a way it's the truth of everything. So past and the future are dead and gone, or not not yet here. So we can't rely on that very, very well. Um, but in the in the larger sense, I think there's a certain constancy to the present in the sense that it's it's always here, even though what's happening inside the present moment is always changing. but as a concept, it's always here it's always yep. uh, it's always available for us right. to use and uh, enjoy right. while living in the past and present in the past and the future
6: mm-hmm.
3: is a worthless kind of Pursuit.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. And, and and I think you know, as you as you say this, this idea between or this distinction between the observer and that which is observed. Uh, and I think this is this is an important distinction to make in terms of our understanding of knowledge is that the observer always needs to be separate and apart from the observed. Yeah. Uh, because if if they were mixed up together, then as soon as you uh you would never have an ability to observe anything accurately because the observation itself would change what's being observed. So the observer and the observed need to be separate um, in that sense. And and so that's uh, an important point to make, but certainly our understanding of uh, our appreciation of what knowledge is, I think we need to understand that difference.
3: I just want to mention that being in the present doesn't mean we can't plan for the future because that's all being done in the present anyway.
2: Absolutely. So, yeah.
3: so, uh, and, so in the present, you know, and and also in the present, we can't learn from the past. Mm-hmm. We can, but you know, to to actually be in the past or in the future is not is uh, not possible. Or is, and if you use your mind to try to be in the in the future, it's that's that's uh, also, you know, can be. Um, Elite of to falsehoods too, I think.
4: Right, and and you know Socrates says you know as we discussed previously
0: that uh, that it's reason that is used to understand the past and the future. That that state of being that exists in the in the past and the future is accessible by reason. And I think here Socrates is saying that it's calculation that we apply when we when we. Apply when we when we apply reason we use calculation um, to to you know figure out what to do with with that application of reason. So reason is applied around the circle uh, and then inside the circle is the visible and that's where the five senses become uh, activated you know as, as Socrates uh, said it's it's the, the senses, are summoned uh, by uh, by the differences that they see um, in the in the present. It's uh, he actually makes this point at 523 C uh, the the perceptions that don't summon the understanding are all those that don't go off into opposite perceptions at the same time. But the ones that do go off in that way, I call summoners. Whenever sense perception doesn't declare one thing any more than its opposite, no matter what the object striking the senses is near at hand or far away. And so that's when he says that reason is summoned uh, when we get these different perceptions. And, you know, that, that example that we started off with the fingers uh, you see a finger, you know, intuitively that it's a finger, but you, then you start seeing differences. You start seeing differences in the position of the finger, you know, second, third, and fifth finger. Uh, you start seeing differences in the softness and hardness, the size of the finger. Some fingers are dark, some fingers are light, some fingers are wrinkly some fingers are fat, some fingers are short and stubby, you know, all of these differences, that's when reason is summoned into into play. And then we start to understand in the present um, how things came to be like that. Uh, And one of my favorite passages in all of Plato is that passage in Amino where he says, knowledge is recollection. And he says further, recollection is the account of the reasons why. So what we're recalling is the account of the reasons why. And I think that's maybe why um, this idea of summoning uh, and and calculation of the differences is in the present, we're understanding those differences and we're using those differences to make that account of the reasons why that forms our knowledge. So, uh, so that's, uh, I mean, this is what I wanted to present with this idea just so that we're kind of clear. I think, I think because if we're not clear on this idea of the difference between being and coming to be, then I think it's it's difficult to understand what Socrates is trying to say in, in the Republic and elsewhere. Um, I just wanted to maybe move from this to the, um, the idea of the differences in the types of knowledge that uh, the Philosopher uses and the Guardian uses, so we have, uh, and we didn't really go through the education of the Guardian, uh, and I, I didn't, I didn't do that for a particular reason because I think, I think here they're kind of refuting what they said earlier. So uh, we've got the section that we're reading today, which is five twenty-one d to five forty-one d, and I picked out a few um, sections in here. I've tried to compare them to comparable sections earlier in the Republic. So this is about hundred pages earlier in in the Republic, when they talk about the guardians in 376A to 399E. Uh, And I have just kind of contrasted the different types of knowledge that the philosopher would use versus what the guardian would use. Uh, Because I think it's important to understand that um, they're, they're not, I don't think that they're advocating for the knowledge that they were saying earlier in 376A to 399E. I don't think that they're advocating for this. I think they're changing their position now. When they get to 521D to 541D, which is what we're reading today, it's a different kind of knowledge that they say that the rulers require. And so there's this contrast in the types of knowledge that they're giving the guardians, they're restricting the, the types of knowledge that the guardians uh, are allowed to have earlier in the Republic. They're saying we, we will not allow them to think certain things. Um, and you know, they also said earlier in the Republic uh, that uh, the guardians were to be the older people. Um, and here I've just replayed this and, and I know Jose has brought this up in the past. Uh, So I just thought it would be helpful to have this section here where they talk about the guardians. And this is on this this first page of the the notes on the right-hand column. uh, They talk about testing uh, the rulers starting from youth, uh, you know, testing. uh, uh, I'll actually just read this from 413E to 414B. This is right before they get into that noble lie that we talked about a few episodes ago. Uh, They say, like those who lead colts into noise and tumult to see if they're afraid, we must expose our young people to fears and pleasures, testing them more thoroughly than gold is tested by fire. If someone is hard to put under a spell, is apparently gracious in everything, and is a good guardian of himself and the music and poetry he has learned, and if he always shows himself to be rhythmical and harmonious, then he is the best person both for himself and for the city. Anyone who is tested in this way as a child, youth, and an adult, and always comes out of it untainted, is to be made a ruler as well as a guardian then isn't it truly most correct to call these people complete guardians since they will guard against external enemies and internal friends so that the one will lack the power and the other will uh, and the other desire to harm the city the young people who we have hitherto uh, called the guardians will now call auxiliaries and supporters of the guardians convictions so that's what they said you know, about a hundred pages earlier and a couple of episodes earlier in our discussion. but then uh in in this reading today, uh, they actually say that it's it's wrong uh, that they they're not going to um, they're not actually going to make the uh, the rulers the older people. They say that we actually have to make them uh the younger people. um so they they talk about it a number of times, uh you know for example at five thirty five a. I say, do you remember what sort of people we chose in our earlier selection of rulers? So there's this earlier selection and there's this later selection. Because so I think now they've got to the point where they understand what really, uh, what real knowledge is required. And they're not going to put themselves as the men on the parapet in that analogy of, or the allegory of the cave that we looked at in our first episode. Uh, they're not going to put themselves in that role, and they're not going to project these falsehoods on the wall in front of the prisoner in the cave and make them think that these are uh, that this that this is truth. Uh, in fact, they say now that the philosopher hates falsehoods. So I think they're changing their approach to the type of ruler that's that's going to be allowed to rule. Um, and in fact, you know, as we saw last episode, they they say that the uh, the philosopher hates falsehoods. And so I'm just wondering, you know, what people think about this distinction? Did you pick this up as you're reading, uh, you know, today's selection versus what we read, you know, back when we talked about the Guardians the first time? Any thoughts on that? There's one really interesting selection here, which is, um, let me just pull it up here. Yeah, it's it's on this page here. It's a comparison of 535E to the earlier part 389 B to C. It's just this last, this last set of boxes here on the on the screen. So now in today's reading, they're saying similarly with regard to the truth, won't we say that a soul is maimed, if it hates a voluntary falsehood, cannot endure to have one in itself, and is greatly angered when it exists in others? but is nonetheless content to accept an involuntary falsehood, isn't angry when it is caught being ignorant, and
2: bears its lack of understanding easily, wallowing in it like a pig. And, you know, compare that to um,
0: 389b to C when they're talking about the guardians. This is earlier in the, uh, in the reading. And there they say, moreover, we have to be concerned about truth as well. For if what we said just now is correct and falsehood, though of no use to the gods, is useful to people as a form of drug, clearly we must allow only doctors to use it, not private citizens. Then, if it is appropriate for anyone to use falsehoods for the good of the city, because of the actions of either enemies or citizens, it is the rulers. But everyone else must keep away from them, because for a private citizen to lie to a ruler is just as bad a mistake as a sailor not to tell the captain the facts about his own condition. Um, so there, there's quite a contrast, I think, uh, that's being set up. And, and I just wonder if, if, uh, if we've picked up on that and what we think about that and, and, you know, what was their intent in talking about the guardians earlier, if they're now going to, you know, turn a different, in a different direction, uh, we'll take JK and then
2: JB.
4: Yeah. Um, the, uh, music and poetry was mentioned. As a form of uh, education, you know, for the young right? but uh,
2: mm-hmm.
4: you know, somewhere maybe later, the uh, uh, the poets are banished, you know, right? Mm-hmm. Because of what? Because they're 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 spreading falsehoods or something. So what uh, what what happens to poetry? You know, after that, <laughs> for as a do they take out poetry as a form of education for the young? Mm-hmm.
0: Exactly. And I've actually got that section, uh, i just moved up, uh, up a few lines here on the screen. I've got that selection again from the Guardians when they were talking about 380b to C. Uh, we won't allow poets to say that the punished are made wretched and that it was a god who made them so, but we will allow them to say that bad people are wretched because they are in need of punishment and that in paying the penalty, they are benefited by the gods. And as for saying that a god who is himself good is the cause of bad things, we'll fight that in every way. And we won't allow anyone to say it in his own city, if it's to be well-governed, or anyone to hear it either, whether young or old, whether in verse or prose. These stories are not pious, not advantageous to us, and not consistent with one another. And so here, I think they were severely limiting the knowledge that the guardians were allowed to use. And now, in the later passages, they're saying, well, you know, maybe the philosopher is really the best one uh, to to be equipped to actually think for himself uh, and to establish his own limits of knowledge. So earlier they were they were kind of like the men on the parapet, limiting the amount of knowledge that the prisoner in the cave was allowed to see on that uh, on the projections on the wall. And now they're saying, well, we that's really not the way that things should be run. Um, Jb, your thoughts on that?
5: Well, I'm struck by the last sentence in 509a. Um, Both knowledge and truth are beautiful things, but the good is other and more beautiful than they. And I would assume Socrates feels that the guardians having a separate education or the falsehoods, the the noble falsehoods for the guardians would be part of the good. I'm also struck by how that's another form of calculation, that knowledge and truth are beautiful, but the good is more beautiful than they. Mm.
0: Interesting point. Yeah, I hadn't, that hadn't occurred to me actually until you just said it, that this idea of greater and less degrees of beauty. Um, and, 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 you know, I, you certainly called out that very important section, I think, where they, where Socrates gives this definition of the good. Uh, so that which gives truth to the, uh, to that which is, to the things that are known. So that which gives truth to the things that are known and the power to know to the knower is the form of the good. Uh, and that's something that uh, I think we we need to keep remembering about uh, in in the Republic.
3: Uh, Bill, I think uh, Socrates here is is giving all the power to the uh, philosophers, mm-hmm. assuming that they'll always be good and correct and truth and truthful. But is that being uh, realistic? <laughs> you know, you know, people are. We are, we are corruptible in some sense or we're, we're prone to untruths from time to time because of lack of knowledge or just our emotions are carrying us away. So I think uh, I think it can be a little bit uh, problematic if we give the power to philosopher, all the power to philosopher kings. I think it might be a little bit better to educate the uh, as many people in the population as we can. Become to to become wise, so we can put checks and balances on on ourselves on each other.
0: Yeah, I, very good point. I mean, and I think um, we'll see what others think about this. But I think in the section that we read two weeks ago, uh, Socrates made the point that we have to be very careful with philosophers because even though. Um, even though they can be very good, they're also subject to the greatest of corruption. And he said that. Uh, and so, because because these are powerful people, they they are actually able to distinguish, you know, these differences in knowledge. Uh, but if they if they become corrupted, uh, the power that they have of perception and of, and of use of reason. Uh, can very be very well be easily used for evil purposes. And so I don't think he's saying that the philosopher is the you know is the panacea that will find a philosopher who will always be good. I think he's saying we have to be very careful to make sure that, you know, as perhaps you said that there are these kinds of checks and balances and that people don't fall under the spell of a charlatan or a fraud. Um, so it's a very good point.
2: Um j k,
4: yeah, I think he's trying to um, you know establish what kind of person should be um, should have this kind of power. and I think he distinguishes the people who are who um are um, are poor in in spirit you know like uh, because of their lack of philosophy. and I think he sees philosophers as the um, as as um, as being uh, rich in spirit, because they're they're concerned with the truth, with knowledge, and so they have no need for uh, for power for the sake you know power for power's sake. They're in it. Um, they're not in it for that. They're in it. They're in it because um, that's not really not their, what they're interested in. They're interested in the truth or in in the in the um, the um, you know spirit of philosophizing and and so um so i i think he's correct in that sense that, that they're less prone to be corrupted because of that because if you have other people who do who lack that kind of um, interest or love of philosophy of truth and uh and then they would be much more likely to be corrupted you know so i think that's a, I, I you know i kind of agree with uh but that's a very uh, that's a good good standard to go by. You look at our, <laughs> I guess you look at our present situation with politicians. You know, they they come from all backgrounds. You know, business people, um, small business owners, and things like that. And and they're basically um, not in it for uh, for any high ideals of uh, public service, right? They're they're in it for something else, you know.
0: And you and you really call out uh, the, right at the beginning of today's reading at five twenty one b, Socrates says, "Can you name any life that despises political ruler besides that of the true philosopher?" And, and then he says, "But surely it is those who are not lovers of ruling who must rule for it is for if they don't, the lovers of it who are rivals will fight over it. And I think that's I think that's essentially what you just Pointed out, you know that this this is what happens when uh, people become uh, lovers of ruling rather than lovers of knowledge. Um, and you know, when we first started talking about the Republic five episodes ago, we looked at the allegory of the cave. And the allegory of the cave the when the prisoner saw the light, when he was able to make his way out of the cave, what happened? They forced him back. you know, so once he saw the light, he he had the knowledge, and he was forced back. He didn't want to go back into that dark cave where where it was full of falsehoods. But he was forced back because he now had the knowledge, and it was his responsibility then with that knowledge, to go back and lead the others to knowledge. And maybe that's a little bit of the checks and balances uh, that Bill was talking about earlier.
2: um j b.
5: So, do we assume that the philosophers themselves won't fight over the truth, over their passion for mm-hmm. the
2: truth? Um, someone who is dedicated to civic service could feel that this is
5: the best way to this is the best way our people should go, or this is a, the the next person could have a completely different idea, and both genuine, both truly dedicated to um, public service, but I still could imagine there would be conflict there as well, and maybe get just as nasty as the uh the businessmen who rule who currently rule.
0: I think a very good point the uh and certainly the section that we didn't cover where they talk about the four different types of of rule uh including democracy, including tyranny democracy uh, You know, those different types of rule, I think they're trying to set out the, you know, the human tendencies towards certain types of behavior. Uh, And I think that there can't be an assumption that the philosopher is always, or that, you know, philosophers will always agree among themselves about the truth. Um, And so there would be likely conflicts, you know, as you, as you stated, but I think, you know, the ideal is that, the, the true philosopher will understand that there are sometimes differences and then will understand also how to deal with differences in a way that's productive and not destructive. Um, so it's a good question and i you know I wonder what others think about that, but uh, uh, you know I think that's certainly we have to get to the level of the philosopher perhaps to even get to that sort of potential uh, j k
4: Well, yeah. Uh- well, the word philosophy means the love of knowledge, right? So, um, even though they might have different uh, different philosophies, first uh, might have different, um, um, you know, um, positions or or ideas of what um, you know what true knowledge should be or is, or how how things should be. Um, they're still interested in in knowledge, in 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 wisdom, and in learning. And so, so even if there's conflict, they will. They will still, you know, uh, uh, be philosophers in arguing about, you know, what is truth and so forth, and and not for the sake of power, right? So, yeah. so of course, you know, there, there's a, you know, you're going to have, you know, maybe some philosophers that 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 believe that uh, there's, uh, you know, um, the philosophy of um, Machiavelli or, or or the philosophy of uh, Hobbes or something like that, but. Uh, but uh, at least, if they're really philosophers, they they also understand the other positions, right, and acknowledge that those other philosophical positions are also uh, might be uh, might be more uh, more truthful, or right. So it, it would be it would be a conflict among people in the uh, you know in the area of uh, of concern for knowledge and truth and uh, as opposed to um uh, yeah as opposed to a democracy where anybody can uh can run for office right and be elected by a a you know group of people um who have uh you know who are interested just in uh in, in in power for power's sake or in or, or for uh monetary interests and things like that and to have have no uh yeah interest or tendency to um to understand or care to for the truth or or not knowledge of the truth
0: interesting the you know they use the idea of you know these philosophical differences so you know one philosopher
2: you
0: know you used hobbes as an example you know might might have one particular way of approaching things other philosophers like machiavelli will have a different way of approaching things and so maybe you know, as you said, the true philosopher will be the one who tries to reconcile these different philosophical approaches. And maybe instead of focusing on the differences, uh, you know, to differences kind of today's theme, maybe in our discussion, instead of focusing on the differences, the the, tr- the true philosopher will try to reconcile and find the the common elements and the common threads uh, to tie them together. Um, so it's it's an interesting point, um, Jose.
6: And, uh, now we, we have to remember that uh, here socrates uh, is trying to design the an ideal city and an ideal form of government. so now uh the philosophers to be rulers remember that uh, they have to be like a, after after they are fifty years old they have almost like forty years of instruction and several and, and several selections. So, Socrates envisioned a way that, uh, practically the people that get there, they will be almost perfect, incorruptible, and, and they don't want uh, material things only knowledge. Now, the thing of uh, disagreement among the philosophers, remember that uh, that uh, well, we didn't cover yet, but uh, the importance of the dialectic. And the dialectic is exactly that. Dialectically is to get to the truth by dialogue, but by conversation. So the, 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 uh, at the end, at the end, the, the philosophers, they cannot disagree. They, well, they disagree, but they go into dialectic and they get the best. So I think Socrates has all these things thought, all these all kind of things. So they cannot be a because different of ideas. It's, it's, it's not. Using dialectically, dialectic, or you have different ideas, you get to the truth.
0: Definitely yes. I, and dialectic is a, an important section of today's reading, and so I think you've you've raised it, and, and it's something that I think we can discuss now. Is this idea of dialectic and what exactly is dialectic? Um, and so yeah, and I just wanted to again call into uh, call to attention five thirty six d in today's reading. Um, where they say, uh, let's not forget that in our earlier selection, when they're talking about the guardians, we chose older people, but that isn't permitted in this one. In other words, the philosophers, for we mustn't believe Solon when he says that as someone grows older, he's able to learn a lot. Um, He can do that even less well than he uh, can run races for all great and numerous labors belong to the young. Uh, So I guess Maybe he's throwing the old people like, like me under the bus uh in that. But uh um I think I think there's this 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 change in the, the earlier section they said the auxiliaries were going to be the young and the rulers were gonna be the old. And now they're they're taking this different kind of tactic to say that the you know it's really the young who have to be trained to be the rulers. Uh so anyway, for those of us who are of a certain age, I guess it it may be. <laughs> Maybe may not be the best news to, to hear, but uh, it's, uh, it's certainly uh, an interesting turn. So maybe just look at this section on the, on the dialectic here that I've got on the screen, 533a to 534a. And this idea that um, where Socrates says, and I've underlined here, uh, dialectic is the only inquiry that travels this road, doing away with hypotheses and proceed, proceeding to the first principle itself, so as to be secure. Uh, and I think this goes back to the discussion that we started today's session on uh, this distinction between being and becoming. Um, so in the world of becoming, which is the present, that uncertain physical state, uh, we make all sorts of hypotheses. And we Perhaps use calculation to make hypotheses you know to to make estimates and guesses. Uh, but he's saying we have to use dialectic, which is really you know more in the power of reason than in the than in this making hypotheses and testing hypotheses uh, and using the power of reason to actually find the first principle that we're trying to uh, to work according to. Um, and you know they're saying so mustn't we insist that the power of dialectic could reveal it? It only to someone experienced in the subjects we've described, and that it cannot reveal it in any other way. So we'll talk about the the different subjects that a philosopher will uh, will be expected to to learn, or at least according to the to the discussion and the dialogue. But maybe talk first about this idea of dialectic and disposing with hypotheses and going directly to the first principles.
6: Jose. Well, no, I, I wanted to. This, this thing that you mentioned about uh, just just uh, before talking about the dialectic uh, about the older people um remember that uh, he's talking about forming the, the people so he doesn't want to start with old people to to the, the education remember that at the end at the end of the book the very last paragraph I think, he says that the, he's asking how so how do we form the the ideal city he said okay you, we go there. And we we banish everybody older than 10 years old, and we grab the the youngest and we start educating them. So that's the pretty, pretty right, right yeah. <laughs> like approach. So the so the education has to start, the forming has to start from like 10 years old. Mm-hmm. No 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 more than that. Mm-hmm. But but to be rulers, to be rulers, so the selection, the auxiliaries. I think when they are 20 years old, they decide who is going to be auxiliary and who is not. And after that, after like 15 years, five years of mathematics and five years of dialectics and 15 years in service. So when they are 50, they just can start being rulers. Anyway. So yeah, method- certainly,
0: certainly the education has to start young uh, and, and can't wait until. Thank you. Uh, exactly yeah yeah and it, it's pretty it's a pretty radical suggestion that they make at the end of the uh, of the book as you say, and we'll we'll look forward to talking about that in, in two weeks time it's uh, it's a very interesting approach um so i just i i did this um i did this kind of diagram here on the screen based on what uh what Socrates says in this second section like around five thirty four a or five thirty three e um, he says, when the, eye, when the eye of the soul is really buried in a sort of barbaric bog, dialectic gently pulls it out and leads it upwards. Using the crafts we describe to help it and, and cooperate with it in turning the soul around. From force of habit, we've often called these crafts sciences or kinds of knowledge, but they need another name, clearer than opinion, darker than knowledge. We called them thoughts somewhere before but I presume that we won't dispute about a name when we have so many more important matters to investigate. It will therefore be enough to call the first section knowledge, the second thought, the third belief, and the fourth imaging, just as we did before. The last two together we call opinion, the other two intellect. And so this is this diagram that I've I've done here just in two boxes. Uh, So the first box is knowledge and thought. They relate to in- intellect, which is what is used to understand the realm of being. And then the second two uh, are belief and images, uh, which are uh, based on the senses. And these uh, generate opinion, which is used in the realm of becoming. Uh, and then he goes on to say uh, that, um, and as being is to becoming, so intellect is to opinion, and as intellect is to opinion, so knowledge is to belief, and thought to imaging. But as for the ratios between the things, uh, these are set over in the division of either the opinable or the intelligible section into two. Let's pass them by, Glaucon, lest they involve us in arguments many times longer than the ones we've already gone through. Uh, so he makes specific reference to ratios, which again is that idea of number and calculation, which he says is the first order of business for a philosopher to learn. Um, and, you know, I just wonder what people think about this distinction, you know, this idea that knowledge and thought belong to the realm of, of the eternal being, which is where we use intellect and reason, and, you know, belief, uh, we, we base our belief on the sensory images that we receive, and that uh, that forms our opinion, which is used in the realm of becoming, but is is not really related to that eternal realm of being. I just thought it was an interesting, you know, way of presenting this, this idea of dialectic and this idea of going to, trying to look for the first principles in things. Yeah, maybe it maybe it relates a little bit to that section in Mino that I mentioned earlier, you know, the idea that uh, knowledge is the account of the reasons why. Uh, and if we're going to make that account, maybe we need to understand, you know, these, the different combinations of information that we receive and the different ways that we can apply our
2: intellect to those, uh, to the information that we receive. Bill
4: and then, uh, Joel and then James.
3: Well, yeah, this struck me as, as quite interesting because, um, you know, uh, we often, including myself, confuse knowledge and belief. We, uh, we take belief for knowledge or we supplant knowledge with belief. Thinking, thinking—it is knowledge. So, um, and uh, dialectic is a way of of uh, threading through that and separating those two, and um, coming up with the truth. So, yes, I know, I understand this. I think it, it's it's a personal failing at times, and um, it needs to be uh, need to be corrected. <laughs>
0: certainly the, the idea of, of distinguishing knowledge from belief uh, and, and opinion is is key. And it, I think it's something maybe that confuses a lot of people. And we see that confusion a lot nowadays, maybe. And so, you know, we need to maybe decrease that confusion. And so dialectic here is provided as the, the way of doing that. Um, Joel, your thoughts?
1: Yeah. I. I find this also very interesting, but perhaps for a slightly different reason. Um, I think that knowledge is what, uh, to use an accounting phrase, generally accepted belief and image. So what we take for knowledge uh, is, is merely beliefs and images that we have absorbed And accept as true. And it's very difficult to change knowledge, but beliefs and images are much more fluid. Knowledge, however, can be changed through sufficient thought. So there's a constant cycle between these four images belief, knowledge, and thought. And um, this really, uh, almost goes back to what is the present, you know, in in a particular instant, thought may overwhelm knowledge, almost like rock, paper, scissors, if you like, it's a to to use an infantile image. But uh, they are all related and constantly evolving, in my opinion. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you and the, the your use of the term generally accepted uh, of course resonates in me as an accountant um and I think somewhere and I, I was just looking for the reference Socrates uses the term the mob uh you know so when you think that knowledge is is the same as what the mob thinks it is you know in other words the crowds of people uh, then maybe that's clouding what knowledge actually is um so we have to you know because it's easy to confuse people perhaps uh, with opinion because you know there's so many ways now that opinion can be disseminated Uh, and and the more people see it the more they're led to believe that it's true when in fact it may just be opinion and so are they provided with the 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 tools that they need to actually distinguish what is generally accepted from what is actually true Uh, so it was an interesting way of putting it thank you And we'll go to James and Jose and Bill. James.
7: Yeah, I think this is a very uh, idealized version of the world that Plato has here. Um, Normally, in in modern times, we think of uh, probability as being the uh, greater uh, way to approach knowledge. Um, We used to have beliefs, for example, that the sun was the center of the universe. Okay. Uh, then we got, and, and we would have considered that to be knowledge. Uh, we would have considered that to be knowledge, but now that we have greater astronomical information, we know that the sun is not the center of the universe. And so I want to suggest that this vision that Plato has of images at the bottom followed by belief with more certainty followed by thought with more certainty yet, coming to knowledge, which is somehow certain, is an illusion. I don't think we have certainty. Um, As Bertrand Russell once said, the only certainty is uncertainty. Uh, I think a more practical way would be to say we have higher uh, levels of probability in what we believe to be true as Plato kind of lived in a <clears throat> in a right and wrong world, where he thought there were there was a, a eternal um, heaven in which the Platonic forms resided, and then there was a uh, universe of opinion in which we basically let our senses reign. I'm interested in the topic of ratios. However, uh, what kind of ratio do we get as we uh, try to show the relationship between opinion and intellect, and I'm I'm interested to hear more about that. That's, good, that's all I have to say.
0: it's a good question, and you make a good point. You know about this. Uh, you know, is this a scale of certainty that we're going up? You know, we're using probabilities, and we're we're going from um, you know lesser certainty about the probabilities of something up to a greater certainty. And what does he mean by ratios here exactly? It's a good question. Um, and I wonder, just add to what you said, uh, you know, the fact that he's grouped um, things together. So he hasn't put it as a, an exact scale of one, two, three, four like this. He's grouped, he's grouped one and two together, and he's grouped three and four together. So belief and images are grouped together, and knowledge and thought are grouped together. Um, so I'm wondering whether this grouping, um is maybe a way of dealing with that uh that uncertainty that you mentioned you know it's it's a good point that you brought up though in terms of you know can there be that scale of certainty uh and you get up to a certain knowledge or is knowledge always grouped with something that is a little bit less certain such as thought um and so maybe it's these groupings that's that's important but let, let's see what others think about that it's a good question thank you thank you uh, go to Jose and Bill.
6: Okay. can you hear me Yes. yes. Uh, well, I, I think here, this, this graphic that you mentioned is uh, this uh, that we put this belief and images and opinion in one side and intellect knowledge and thought in the other, is exactly what uh, he was doing with the allegory of the cave. Mm-hmm. Remember that the prisoners at the beginning, they were chained and the only thing that they saw was they were images. So they, they considered the world the world, the truth, everything was images. And after that, when the prisoner was free, he saw the fire and he saw the and he saw the like the statues and, and what happened inside the cave. So he he is in the stage of belief. But uh because even the things that he sees, they are not the real things. Because he's in, he's, he's still inside the cave, he's <clears throat> in the stage. So now he gets out of the cave. So this is the the, the state of thought. I think maybe when he's still seeing reflections and knowledge, when he see the sun and the and the real forms of everything. Mm-hmm. and everything. Uh, and so this is this is one one thing. This is the the, the way that the, the, way, the way that he see. Another thing that uh, we're talking about the like the sun. Rotated is the, the 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 sun rotates uh, to the earth, etc., etc. Remember, I, I I think this is my opinion. We can we can we can debate about that. But I think for Plato, remember that Plato he didn't like very much astronomy as a as a as a as a, as a thing for knowledge. I think for knowledge, he's looking more at eternal truth. Like a, I think it's more like ethical things. The concept of justice, you know, the concept of beauty, et cetera, That they are like, a, I think they, for him, they think they, don't, they won't change. Doesn't matter whatever you discover, like a, the theory of relativity or whatever, whatever, the thing won't change. So uh, it's it's not like astronomy or, or the physical things that they, they can change. The knowledge for him, I think is more like these
2: eternal truths. Well, thanks for that reminder about
0: the allegory of the cave and that kind of progression, I think you were talking about uh, from from the images to belief, that that combination. uh, And then that was illuminated, you know, maybe with the simile of the sun that we talked about when when we did that episode. Uh, So there was that illumination that was brought into it. And then belief and image kind of uh, progressed to knowledge and thought. Uh, uh, but I think what you're talking about is maybe that kind of progression.
6: Yes, and another, another thing that I, uh, I, I think I forgot to mention, I think in thought, for example, he, uh, when he he's talking about the teaching of math, mathematics, he's just below knowledge. So mathematics is, I think, is belong to that area of thought, because it, it will help with the knowledge. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. And certainly, I mean, I think
0: mathematics is, well, mathematics and geometry, uh, which is the second level of knowledge that he recommends, both of those are subject to certainty, right? You, you can say with certainty that 2 times 2 equals 4, or 2 squared equals two 4, or 2 plus 2 equals 4. You can say with certainty that those relationships exist. Uh, Whereas, you know, as you you pointed out, ethics, for example, is subject to all sorts of uncertainty. You know, the question of justice is subject to all sorts of uncertainty. And so, you know, maybe we need to, as he says, you know, get deal with uh, or learn knowledge that leads us to certainty first, and then we can start to deal with uncertainty. And so maybe that's why he puts number and calculation as the, you know, the first level of certainty. And, and he's pretty categorical about that actually. He says, you know, and this is you near know, the beginning of the reading at 522c, uh, he says, uh, isn't it true that every craft in science must have a share in number and calculation? Every craft in science must have a share in number and calculation. So he's pretty categorical. He doesn't leave any room for doubt in that. Uh, so maybe that is that that question of you know, Learning the most certain knowledge first, and then you can progress to the less certain things, as you put it. Uh, so, thank
3: you, uh, Bill. Yes. Well, I appreciate what Jane said about about this uh, about this model in the sense that it's it's idealized. And um, so, you know, knowledge. What is knowledge, and how do we get it? Well, it seems to me that it comes from. Seeing what is, is is apparent to you, what is visible, what is seen, and what is not seen, as well. So, so in a sense, and and um, and experience as well. But we need the, the intellect, we need the thought, the mind to to parse that information. And uh, so the two go together. You can't knowledge by itself could be. Could be false, you know. In the alleg- in the cave allegory, it's it's you know what they see is not correct. Was this false, right? But um, you know, if they if if one if one thought of used used your mind, you could you could say to yourself, well, what what is it that I'm not seeing that may change? My perception, my the truth of the matter
2: very powerful point actually, that you make there you know this this
0: idea that uh, what is not seen can sometimes be more important than what is seen mm. uh, and I think that's that's something that you know is we can easily become confused about because we want to i mean the Light is the the thing that travels fastest in the universe. So it's a thing that reaches our eyes first. And we want to believe what we see, right? But I think there are there are ways that that perception can be distorted. And certainly we saw that in the allegory of the cave. Um, we can see it too, in and I'm thinking about Marshall mcLuhan um, who uh, who, you know talked about, this was in the Gutenberg Galaxy, where he he wrote about the introduction of television at the at the time he wrote it in 1962, I think. So his television was fairly new, and he was talking about the the problem with a two dimensional screen is that it doesn't let you see depth from from a natural perspective. It allows you to see depth from the perspective of the person who has actually filmed the image, and so he makes the point that uh, you know if if an image is filmed, you know, for example, if you have a, a gathering of people, say they're say there's a protest uh, and there's maybe 20 people protesting you know they've got their signs up and they're yelling and all of that so the camera might take a uh, an image of that group from below uh, and that image because it's it's from below it would fill the screen with all of those people and there's only 20 people at the protest for example but it would make it seem as if the protest is, very large because of the angle from which the the shot is is taken whereas if you had a shot from above you would see that it was a very small gathering in relation to the space around it Uh, and i think that's actually something that may be practiced a lot now that kind of distortion is practiced a lot now to to make uh the the event seem like the depth of the event seem as something that it is not otherwise, and that can be done you know with a particular political uh, perspective, for example, so I found that was a very powerful example in in that kind of two dimensional understanding where where the third dimension of depth is is not our own it's not natural it's put there by the person who's taken the image um, and that's maybe actually something that maybe we'll just go and look at the the um, the order of knowledge that uh, Socrates and Glaucon discuss here uh, and this is from 522 B to 528 E. And here I've Socrates actually uses the the term, you know, going from two dimensions to three dimensions. Um, And so what I tried to do was uh, put these subjects that they talk about in order. So they say first number and calculation. Uh, as we've seen is the first order of business for a philosopher to learn. The second order of business, they say, is plane geometry. Then the third is solid geometry. And the fourth is astronomy. And what I tried to do is set out in this table the different dimensions that these subjects deal with, uh, and then also the types of knowledge provided. So numbering calculation, uh, I've indicated one dimension. uh, And that's, you know, just thinking about the dimension, the dimensionality of number, considering that from the perspective of the infinite density of the real line. So we, you know, in the early 1800s, the three dimensional concept of math and geometry was introduced and the real line is introduced and that's when the imaginary or lateral numbers were introduced. Uh, but when we think of number itself, number is the real line and that is infinitely dense. And so I put it as one dimension. So maybe that's kind of the idea of the first principle is that number and calculation gives, gives, us, gives us that single dimension uh, of knowledge. And the type of knowledge I indicated here, I think that they're talking about is the knowledge of equality and inequality. Um, and then so from there, they go to plane geometry, that's the second order of knowledge that the philosopher needs to know. And that would deal with two dimensions, length and width. Uh, so that's how you get a plane figure, you know whether it's a triangle or a square or or you know whatever the other plane figures are. there's an infinite number of them, I guess. Uh, but that deals with two dimensions. And that gives you uh, that gives you a sense of both difference and shape. So we go from one dimension which has no shape, to shape, which is where we get plane geometry. And then from there, we go to solid geometry, which Socrates says is the third uh, order of business. And so solid geometry takes the shape that we got in the second dimension of plane geometry, and it puts it into three dimensions, it gives us depth. So instead of just length and width, we now have depth. Uh, and then the fourth order of business, he says, is, is astronomy. And so the astronomy takes depth and gives it motion. Um, So I thought this was kind of an interesting progression of these different levels of knowledge. And I'm wondering what what everyone thinks about that. I mean, if we accept, and I don't know if we accept, but if we accept numbering calculation as the first level of knowledge, does this progression seem to make sense in understanding the changing world that is around us, the changing world of the present that is around us? Does Does this progression seem to make some sense?
6: Um, Jose? Well, just one point is that uh, that, uh, Plato, uh, a difference with uh, Aristotle's, he uh, kind of dismiss things that uh, we need observation to to get knowledge. So he thinks that uh, everything has to be in the abstract level. I don't know how to explain. This is why when we, we, we were talking about astronomy, and they say I, I like something like I like astronomy, but not by observation, just by deduction. And he he's talking more more about I think metaphysics or cosmology than, than, than astronomy. So um, he likes he he wants to study all the things from the from the theori- theoretical point of view. He said that geometry is okay. We need that geometry to for for military purposes or for but uh, but in reality, for him it's uh, the theoretical no no observation It's is as this is a big difference with Aristotle's because Aristotle he says that science is start by observation anyway, that's point
0: that I well, and thank you for raising that difference. It's an important one and i I'd like to discuss that actually if if anyone else is interested in discussing that uh, the point that Jose just raised you know is is all knowledge perception is is the only knowledge that we can have that which we uh, receive with our five senses. Uh, Or uh, I think as Plato is saying, uh, does knowledge come to us by way of reason, uh, which is dialect, which is from the use of dialectic uh, and reason can transcend the what we perceive with our five senses. I think that's a very important distinction to make. um, Because we might. Things that we see or we think that we know uh, from observation, you know, such as that, you know, long period of human history when we thought that the sun revolved around the earth uh, until we discovered that it was not that way. Um, You know, is is observation subject to error? And and that was a significant error. I mean, it was an error that uh, led, for example, Galileo to be subject to the Inquisition um you know and, and prohibited from writing because he thought that it, you know, he was implying that, that you know what they thought to be reality was actually not reality it's an important point um so let i mean if, if we want to explore that it'd be great and and otherwise if anybody else else has any other ideas uh, please bring them forward we've got about 20 minutes left and we'll go
3: to bill and then jk i was thinking about the james uh, part pack's example of the flat earth well, you know, that was
2: a, it was seen in a two-dimensional way
3: in the sense so that you know, the, the the technology wasn't really available to everyone to to see the earth see the curvature of the earth which would imply the third dimension because if you're looking at the earth you know, l- looking at the field, it, it's, it appears to be the earth is, is, is actually two-dimensional, but if you Go into a little bit higher into the atmosphere. You will quickly see the curvature. So, you know, you can't blame people for for accepting that the, that that was the case, but you can question why why they refused to accept the the truth. You know, when when it was available to science, which they did for many years. Um. So, yeah, that's what I have to say
0: about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a good example, actually. I like that. You know, they they kind of, you know, intuitively, you, you might think that the Earth is flat, but then you start, the technology develops so that you can go into space and you can see that it's not flat. Uh, you know, maybe similar with astronomy. Um, you know, a lot of astronomy is radio astronomy, for example, where they use microwaves. Uh, So they're not actually seeing these objects that are, you know, 13 billion years into the past. They're actually just picking up reflections of radio waves or microwaves from those things. So are they really, is the technology really there to really truly see what these things are like or are inferences still being made? Uh, It's a good example of of technology and how it changes our perception of things. Certainly Galileo you know, was one of the first to use telescopes. Uh, and that was a technology that brought some very new information uh, to enlighten, you know, the, the ideas that were previously held. Um, JK, your, your thoughts?
4: Yeah, it seems like we have, uh, you know, two ways of um, knowing the, uh, you know, knowing existence and the, um, you know, based on our perception. Uh, you know, uh, and based on the uh, knowledge, and um, like for instance, the sun. We still, you know, say the sun rises and falls, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and um but the actual fact is that <clears throat> the sun does does not, uh, you know, does not do that rise and fall. It it goes around, right? So, but we still use the language of that uh, based on our perception, which goes back, you know, with, you know, uh, thousands of years. When they start doing that, we still have uh, maintained that kind of, uh, you know, sense and uh, and we like to say we we experience the earth as we experience the earth as flat, but we know that it's not, you know, right. Mm-hmm. But um, so, a lot of what we, uh, you know, uh, you know. Um, you know think that we know as a uh, knowledge is 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 false all right and and we and we kind of know it's false but then we still use the language to to um you know to 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 describe you know what is uh what is false as as though it was true um but yeah so you know there there is a sense that we do we have uh we we have knowledge of things that we don't perceive you know like the um, that we, you know, we have this uh, understanding of quantum physics that's based on, you know, uh, calculation and so forth. And uh, but when we, uh, you know, you mentioned the observer effect, you know, then it kind of like uh, disproves what we thought we we knew, right? So, so there, there's a kind of uh, you know a duality there between what we what we know based on perception and what we know based on our based on what uh, reason calculation mathematics you know geometry and so forth astronomy yeah so there is a, uh, but there is you know so which one is certain you know right uh we you know definitely we we uh you know uh, we feel certain about our experiences or what what's the uh, present in our in, in our in our existence but um or we, we you can't also we also can't deny the certainty of uh, knowledge like the the earth is not flat, you know, or the sun does not rise or fall, and uh, the number of uh, you know uh, planets in, in the universe and so forth. So we don't really see those, but we we have a knowledge of those, and we feel certain about that too.
2: And
0: I think you you call an important point that uh, we need to know the limits of our knowledge. We need to know what we don't know. Um, and, and, you know, to, to say that we are certain about something, we have to be very careful when we say that we're certain about something, don't we? Because, you know, history proves that, you know, things can change and, and new knowledge comes along and what we thought was certain is, in fact, not certain. So I guess acknowledging that we don't know <laughs> is sometimes more important than, you know, it, than acknowledging what we do know. Uh,
2: so thanks for that, and Moshe.
8: Hold on just a second. I'm really technologically
2: challenged today. No worries. Um, okay, right. I got it. Okay, there. No. Okay. okay. Uh, let's start out with the, uh, you know, your subjects of number and calculation, plane geometry, solid geometry, and astronomy. Um, uh, I I just want to make mention that after he discusses that, um, he says at 530
8: A or B, something like that. Then I said, in astronomy, as in geometry, uh, we should employ problems and let the heavens alone be, let the heavens alone if we would approach the subject in the right way. And so make the natural gift of reason uh, uh, to be of any real use, and then he goes on to I mean he's saying that there are problems and limits with astronomy, and then he goes on to talk about motion and talking about problems with that, and then he talks about the the, the relativity of the ears, and uh, he concludes all these things. Uh, by saying that none of these things give us real knowledge. And that goes back to the uh, example that you were giving uh, a couple of slides up uh, that was very reminiscent to me of the uh, of the uh, allegory of the divided line. Okay. In the divided line, he's got uh, reason, intellect, perception, opinion, or something like that. And um, and and all of those things, uh, all of those things, are reaching toward what the Platonic ideal is. Because if we remember where Plato is coming from, he has this idea that reality is indivisible, true, absolute, unchanging. And therefore, if we're going to be, we'll never be able to perceive those things. We can only know those things by the mind. Nevertheless, we want to train the mind, train the individual, to uh, uh, to come to this, to the acquisition of this knowledge, and we do that by introducing mathematics, and in our mathematics we talk about number and calculation and plane geometry and solid geometry and so on, until we get down, and, and then we introduce all the problems with that, uh, and. It ends with uh, you know with um, um, Glaucon trying to say that you know that a, a, you know that well then a mathematician you know he's going to be you know he's going to know uh, be the, the the closest to a, uh, to a dialectician and at the end of of uh, 531 he says what do you mean I said Socrates speaking the prelude or, uh the prelude or what. Do you not know that all this is but the prelude to the actual strain which we have to learn? For you assuredly would not regard the skilled mathematician as a dialectician, because he goes on to say, uh, assuredly not for one of you know a mathematician to be capable of, to be capable of reason. Then Socrates continues, and so Glaucon, and I said, we have at last arrived at the hymn of dialectic. And just to skip a little bit, and so with dialectic, when the person starts on the discovery of the absolute by the light of reason only, without any assistance of sense, and preserves until by intelligence he arrives at the perception of the absolute good. And perception of, in this case, does not mean visual perception, but Plato is a is a uh, a realist at this point, thinking that the mind has direct access to the forms, the perception of the absolute that he at least finds find himself at the end of the intellectual world as in the case of the sight at the end of the vis- sight at the end of the visible. okay, so that's the one thing I want to say about this progression that we want to bring the uh, you know that we want to bring our leaders through in order to be able to uh, uh, be, be in the position to have the knowledge and the and the tools dialectic in order to be a good leader. Then he talks about the divisions of knowledge, and uh, with my greatest line here is that, you know, whatever we say about the conception of good, it has to run
2: the gauntlet of all objections. That brings me back to what you were talking about earlier with Solon, okay? And this is at the bottom of uh, of uh, 536.
8: Um, Socrates says, but I, who am indeed the teacher, felt that I was. And now let me remind you that although in your former selection you chose old men, we must not now do so in this. Salon was under the delusion that when he said that a man, when he grows old, may learn many things. For he can no more learn much uh, than he can run much. Youth is the time for any extraordinary toil. But when Socrates says that an old man uh, cannot learn, you know, is, is as limited in his learning as he is in his running, it doesn't follow from that that because an older person can't run much, that he can't run a little. Okay? And the same thing with his learning. He might not be able to have encyclopedic knowledge, but he might have dialectical knowledge. And that's what you want. And then Socrates, and then the argument, you know, goes on about what it's like when you're, you know, you know well, let's take a 20-year-old and we'll start to teach him. Things. And, well, you know, there are problems, you know, there are problems with, you know, what, uh, um, you know, what what kids uh, uh, can do and, and what can learn uh, what they can learn, and it says okay not twenty but how about thirty? Okay, well thirty will go along and we'll get you know uh, higher learning, and they can start to learn uh, uh, the dialectic. But there's a problem uh, when they you know uh, when they're thirty, they become uh, intoxicated with all these things, and so they skip fifteen years into forty five uh, about that age, and they give the warning of the person who learns dialectic that he may become a sophist,
2: okay? For he says uh, at 2.39, halfway through, and when they
8: have made many conquests and received defeats at the hands of many, they uh, violently and speedily get into a way of not believing anything, which they believed before. So anything that we've taught them before, they're at a position now through the dialectic. They've been beat up back and forth. They don't believe anything, and hence not only they but philosophy, and all that relates to it, is apt to have a bad name with the rest of the world. And we know that type of philosophy, which has a bad name with the rest of the world, is 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 sophistry. So then down at the beginning of two forty, Socrates continues. 50 years, I answered. And when they have reached 50 years of age, okay, uh, um, then let those who still survive and have distinguished themselves in every actions of their lives. So these are the old farts, perhaps. Maybe, James, your age, okay? Because I'm way past that. But, you know, people at your age, Now, you, if if you do survive and learn the dialectic and you've distinguished yourself uh, in every action of your lives and in every branch of knowledge, come at last to their consummation. The time has now come uh, when they have arrived at the eye of the soul to the universal light that lightens all things. And they have learned in that the dialectic and they have learned in that how to learn. So, I I just want to just want to summarize that. All of these pieces of knowledge that we have that are in some way empirical or based upon perception, Socrates in this particular section is arguing against. And he's also saying that we have to challenge the old idea that Glaucon had at the beginning or earlier in the Republic to say, well, it's the older people, obviously, they're going to be the best statesmen. Uh, and Socrates said, well, you know, maybe not. You know, Salon tells us that, you know, if you're just an old cracker, you might not be able to do anything. But then Socrates goes on to show how, yeah, that's true. But some of the old geezers, you know, James, I think you're part of this, and some of the other younger members in the class can really accelerate in some of the things that we need for statesmanship. And they will come in their fifties to the age of, of uh, 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 the consummation of their knowledge when they've really learned the dialectic and we really learned the uh, uh, the principles of. Of philosophy, uh, I just want to remind everybody that after he talks about uh, Socrates talks about the problems with, uh, um, you know, with with astronomy, he starts talking about industry, the love of truth, and the knowledge of morals. That's the person who we want to have as our as our statesman. That's going to be that's going to be the true philosopher. And as I read to my wife last night, the last. On on one of the, on the last page, yes, I said, Glaucon. Glaucon uh, oh. had said these men must be our governors. Yes, I said, Glaucon, and for our governesses too, for you must not suppose that what I have been saying applies to men only and not to women, as far as their natures go. There you are right, Glaucon said since we have made them to share in all things like the men. So that's my, I'm, I'm off my soapbox now, but I just, I, I wanted to point that.
2: Thank you. And that's
0: a, a very good point, you know, that that women are not excluded from this and that's something that's very, uh, you know, given the time, I guess that's something, maybe that's a little bit surprising and and good, you know, because I think, as you said, uh, it's all about, you know, the training of the mind and the training of the mind starts at an early age. And then once the mind is trained, uh, you know, as you said, I think, Moshe, I like the, the word prelude that you used um, uh, near the beginning of what you were talking about is, is you know, that once the mind is trained uh, to apply reason, you know, for example, with the subjects in the order that they've set them, uh then it's capable of of actually governing. And so uh it's an interesting uh it was a good I think it was a good summary that you gave and and appreciate that that uh, ending part too that it it's, it includes everybody. It is not it is not excluding uh women, it's not excluding the old, it's not excluding the young. It, but it starts at a young age. Um, so Thank you for that. We've just got a few minutes left, and so we'll go to Jose, and then um, maybe we'll wrap it up after that. Jose? <coughs>
6: yeah, well, yeah, one point that uh, that it wasn't mentioned, and uh, that, that is the, in, the, in the education, like uh, education, we have to two, two things. First of all, he, he emphasized the thing that we cannot force education in the children. So, this is the, the old saying that uh, the good uh, teacher is the one that uh, not, not give facts to the, to the students, give, give they laugh of the subject. So when they love the subject, they don't, really they don't have to teach. And another thing is that uh, the way of, uh, the way to get uh, the knowledge is a kind of, he's saying that uh, you should teach only the concepts, basically, not the facts. It's like the, the old idea that they, you, you know, in the old days that they teach you the multiplication table and like you have to memorize them. But uh, they didn't explain you what is the rationale of it. So it's better to teach the rationale because you'll never forget. And this is what exactly what Plato is saying. And uh, another thing that I wanted, I, I, I mentioned before and now with the Moshe exposition, this is that uh, when we talk about Plato, the, the meaning of him to be to have knowledge of something, it means it's knowledge that it cannot change. So any knowledge, like a, 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 the, the classic example is astronomy. You know, you observe the things and you say, oh, okay, I have knowledge, okay. The way that the sun moves around the earth or whatever, this is not knowledge because it's based on observation. He thinks that the, only the eternal thing, the thing that won't change, this is the kind of knowledge that you have to, it will be eternal, the like, concept of justice. Of beauty, et cetera, et cetera, that it will never change whatever this core.
0: And, and thank you for reminding uh, of that part where he says, and I was just looking for the passage, it's in here somewhere, where he says that uh, you can't force someone to learn something because the soul doesn't retain what is forced. Um, in other words, if you tie a prisoner up in the cave, force him to look at the wall, uh he's not going to remember what he sees on the wall as much as if he learned it internally and, and i think the example used is that you know you, you teach children using games for example so that they establish internally that sense of relationship between cause and effect perhaps um, but definitely that's a good point you know that that you, you can't that forced knowledge is not as good as uh knowledge that's discovered through the self and i think that's an important point um And so maybe just wanted to end uh, with this short bit here. And this is where they're talking about uh, astronomy, Uh, but it's also talking about looking up. Um, uh, But uh, Moshe, did you want to say something before I? Uh,
8: Yeah, I just wanted to say it's at the bottom of 536. Uh, Socrates says, but a free man ought not to be a slave in the acquisition of knowledge of any kind. Bodily exercise, when compulsory, does no harm to the body, but knowledge, which is acquired under compulsion, obtains no hold on the mind.
2: Thank you. Yeah, that was that's at
0: the bottom of 536, he said. So that's a very good point. Uh, and I think that's that's, you know, maybe what you were talking about. before Moshe that this is the whole prelude to you know getting the mind trained you know is to to engage it in this in this way so that it retains the knowledge. Um, So maybe just wrap up with this sort of last you know section from it's around 529b or 529ab where Socrates you know this is where they talk about astronomy. Socrates says it may be obvious to everyone except me but that's not my view about it as it's practiced today by those who teach philosophy It makes the soul look very much downward. He's talking about the astronomy here. In my opinion, your conception of higher studies is a good deal too generous. For if someone were to study something by leaning his head back and studying ornaments on a ceiling, it looks as though you'd say he's studying not with his eyes, but with his understanding. Perhaps you're right, and I'm foolish, but I can't conceive of any subject making the soul look upward except one concerned with that which is and that which is, is invisible. If anyone attempts to learn something about sensible things, whether by gaping upward or squinting downward, I'd claim, since there's no knowledge of such things, that he never learns anything, and that even if he studies lying on his back on the ground or floating on it in the sea, his soul is looking up, not up, but down. Um, And so I thought I'd just maybe end with that quote there and it relates to the picture that I have behind me, it's a section of the School of Athens painting in which uh, Aristotle is next standing next to Plato and Plato is pointing up and Aristotle's pointing down uh, and that's that difference between up and down and I think what uh, Socrates is saying here is that looking up is, is looking to the invisible, that which we can't see uh, and sometimes that's more important than what we can see. Um, and so I wanted to uh, end it there for today. Uh, it's been a wonderful discussion, absolutely great discussion, uh, and very much looking forward again, as I said, to two weeks where we'll wrap up our six-session uh, uh, series on the Republic. Uh, we'll read from 587B through to the end of Book 10 at 621B. So that'll be in two weeks, and then we'll take a break for the holidays, and we'll see what we'll... Uh, encounter when we start again in January so uh, again thank you all for for a great discussion today Uh, I will end the recording and then those who wish to stay online uh, just for a casual uh, session of Plato's Cafe for a half an hour more than welcome to and uh, again I hope to see everybody in two weeks so thank you very much